Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? Are you feeling better? I, I kicked out. I finally kicked out about, oh, I don't know, 11 o'clock this morning or so. Started feeling pretty decent. Went to the gym, got a decent workout in. Came home and powered down some electrolytes that I'm sure we're going to talk about in just a little while. But, yeah, I feel uh, I feel pretty good right now. Well, we're glad you're back amongst the living. Welcome back to America after your uh, long trip to Qatar or Qatar, I guess it is, huh? I've been saying it wrong. Yeah, you know, no, you know what? I wanted to, you know, we'll spend a couple of minutes talking about that or at least a minute or two. You know, I, I the whole time I've been talking about going over to Qatar, Qatar, I've been reprimanded on social media about pronouncing it incorrectly. Every time I pronounce it Qatar, people would say it's not like guitar, it's cutter. And I, I thought, wow, I, I feel pretty stupid. Now, I, I will tell you that when I went over there, it's pronounced both ways mm. by by people that live there. So I've, I've, I guess it depends on your accent or whatever. But um, I heard people from Qatar refer to Qatar as Qatar, but I've also heard it as Cutter and some and somewhere in between. So for all of you who felt the need to correct me <laughs> and, and making me feel, you know, slightly stupid, uh, I, I just want to point out that while I was over there, you know, people from the native land also referred to it as Qatar. So bite me. Well, either way, we're glad you're back in America. We apologize for the late, uh, Dropped this week on 83 weeks when Eric got back, he was down for the count, slept 18 hours straight. And I thought, you know what, rather than him be upset and limping along and not feeling good, let's let him kick out and uh, we'll crank this thing out as soon as we can. And man, do we have a lot to unpack today? We're going to get in our way back machine and talk about a show that happened 20 years ago. And this, I believe is an interesting show to talk about because it's one that you were watching from the outside, looking in just before you came back into the company. Of course, we're talking about Super Brawl 2000. It went down on February 20th at the Cow Palace in San Francisco. I guess this is technically Super Brawl 10. Somewhere along the way, you guys uh, decided to stop uh, numbering them like that. And this one is Super Brawl 2000. And this is much different than the Super Brawls we've seen before. For starters, it drew 5,538 paid, 3,031 comps. Uh, the cow palace gate here is 177 grand and only 38,000 in merchandise. These numbers are a stark contrast from when the NWO was up and running hot and heavy just a few years before. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, l- I looked at the crowd and of course the cow palace is an older building, so it's easy to make it look pretty decent. Uh, just the way the building is configured and the lighting and so forth the, the, the crowd looked pretty good, but that's a, that's a pretty soft number. You know, going into this Super Brawl, no doubt about it. It's a very soft number. Well, and WCW is reeling in a lot of ways at this time, you know, both creative and attendance. Well, ratings. I mean, pretty much every way a wrestling company could be hurting. That is what is going to describe WCW as we head into the year 2000 here. The Monday Night War, while still technically ongoing, it's really been over for well over a year at this point with the WWF firmly establishing their dominance. Uh, but one of the biggest hits came just a few weeks prior to this event when the radicals walked out, of course, Eddie Guerrero, Dean Malenko, Perry Saturn, and the newly crowned world champion, Chris Benoit all left WCW for the WWF. And when that happened, you weren't there, you were home. 
What'd you think about all these guys taking a stand and, and making a mass exodus like this? Really the first time that we would see not one guy jump, but a lot of guys jump, multiple guys jump. Yeah. And I was trying when I, you know, I knew we were going to do this show before I left for, uh, Qatar and tried to, you know, patchwork together a timeline in my memory of exactly, you know, when I had left, of course I knew when I had left, but when I had come back and when more importantly, as it relates to this show, when I first really started talking seriously to Brad Siegel about possibly coming back to WCW after I was technically, technically called up paid or played, which is a legal term within the contract. But once you know, once if if someone is under contract and there's a pay or play provision in that contract, once they are deemed to be paid, they don't have to play you, but you can only pull that trigger once. It's not like they could send me home, say, okay, we're going to exercise the, the pay or play option in your agreement. And then once that option is exercised, uh, they can say, no, I changed my mind. We're going to bring you back to work. It, it was one and done. So I was technically still under, well, not technically, I was legally still under contract to WCW when I got that call from Brad Siegel. And in terms of the timing and and referencing to your question and context, uh, I was on my way home to, uh, to Atlanta, actually, from Wyoming. I had my own plane at the time. And I had flown, Lori and I flew up from uh, Atlanta, picked up my brother and sister in Minneapolis, and then we all flew together to Wyoming to watch the Super Bowl. And when I returned on that flight to Minneapolis to drop off my brother and sister, Lori and I decided to just spend the night in Minneapolis. And we went to an Applebee's or Chili's, whatever it was, uh, near the hotel where we were staying. And they had Nitro, it was a Monday night, they had Nitro on, excuse me, Monday Night Raw on in the restaurant where we were eating and you know, I couldn't hear anything, but I was kind of watching it out of the corner of my eye and not kind of paying attention, but not really paying attention. The television monitors were far enough away where I couldn't really tell ideally what was going on anyway. And then out of the corner of my eye, I saw the reveal, uh, of when the radicals showed up and I, I stared at the television and it was weird. You know, it was just, kind of, I, I don't know how to describe it. I guess it would be like, you know, you're, you're seeing your ex-girlfriend out with her new boyfriend, you know, for the very first time in public or something like that. It was kind of, it was strange, you know, and I, I must've been staring at the TV long enough that Lori said to me, she goes, what are you, what are you staring at? And I, I said, look at that. And of course, Lori did, she didn't know what was really going on. She wasn't paying close attention. And I told her, she said, what are you thinking? And I said, I'll be getting a phone call soon. And I, I, I the words just rolled off my tongue. I hadn't thought about it. I didn't want to get a phone call from Turner. I, I, I you know, I was in my rear view mirror. I had two or two and a half years left on my contract. I was good. You know, I didn't, wasn't thinking about anything, but the words just rolled off my, my tongue in an instant. And literally, we, we, we got back to uh, Atlanta probably a day or two days later. We took our time getting home. And sure enough, after being home for about two or three days, I got the phone call. And um, premonition or whatever, um, Brad, it was Brad Siegel asked me, you know, what, you know, in a very casual way, what are you up to? What have you been thinking about? What are your plans for the, you know, in a, in a roundabout way? 
you know, trying to feel me out to see if I'd be willing to come back. So that was that period of time between whenever the Super Bowl was in 2000 and probably, oh, 10 days later, a week later is when I probably had my first serious conversation with Brad about the possibility of coming back. So I wasn't here. I wasn't in WC. I shouldn't say here. Um, I wasn't in WCW for this pay-per-view. I wasn't really a part of the buildup or anything, but there were some conversations taking place right around this time. The Super Bowl in 2000 went down on January 30th from the Georgia Dome. So everybody in Atlanta was probably, uh, on the hype train for that, but you somewhere at a, uh, a casual dining restaurant knew what was coming. Uh, we should also mention that, uh, you're going to wind up landing back officially, at least on camera in April. It's good to know that. You had at least been talking about them. Let's talk a little bit about where the business had been and, and, and all of that in more recent years. We're here in January, your average attendance in 99, uh, in January of 99 was 8,661 fans in February. It's 8,814 fans just a year later here for the pay-per-view it's 5,538 paid. So a big decrease here in a major way. Uh, most of the decrease of course happened in the second half of the year, the nitro rating would decrease from a 4.47 average in 98, where it actually beat the WWF on average for the year to a 3.66. So an 18% drop. Uh, but then the, the real serious drop happened, uh, in 99 where you fall an average of 0.93, uh, to a 0.55. Uh, no, I'm sorry. That's with buy rates. So buy rates are, are going to go down 41%. Major, major dip. Also, the uh, house show uh, business down as well. You're selling out 15% of your house shows in 1999. When you compare that to 1998, roughly half, 49% were sold out. Just everywhere you look, it feels like this business is circling the drain a little bit. So it makes sense to me that the brass said, hey, uh, who was running this thing when it was at its peak? And can we get him back? Uh, We've talked a little bit about how you knew it was coming. But Lori had a unique perspective, uh, Mrs. B, because she was there to see you during the good times and during the bad times and just how stressed out you were and how not fun it was and how it had to affect you personally. What did she think when you got the call? Was she happy? Was it vindication or was she dreading that? Oh man, you're going to get back into that rat race. It was, it certainly wasn't vindication. She wasn't happy. Neither one of us are kind of built that way. Um, you know, Lori's always been really supportive of anything and everything I've ever attempted to do. <laughs> um, but she was concerned also. She did, she did, she did see a lot in terms of what I went through starting in late 1998 and certainly through 99 until I left the company in September of 99. And it was ugly. You know, it was, it was not a pretty sight. And I think she was relieved when I finally left Turner. I know I was, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm certain she was as well. And I think the prospect of going back was probably, I don't know. I I never really talked to her about it, to be honest, but I, I could tell by the way she reacted to, the news that I had been on the phone with Brad and so forth, that she was, uh, concerned, I think more than anything, you know, hoping that I made the right decision. Yeah. And I think that's natural. Uh, and man, they needed some help here to put Kevin Nash back together. Uh, according to Dave Meltzer, he suffered an apparent ankle injury on the 30th 
getting out of a car. He slipped on the ice and the next day I uh, had to go, uh, get some surgery from Dr. James Andrews in Birmingham. There's a whole plate put in. He's going to be out of action for about six weeks here. And, uh, they know that he'll still be on TV doing promos and whatnot, uh, but no in-ring action here. How common is this, uh, that you, that you can think of where injuries happen to, to the boys, but they don't happen in the ring just in real life. I mean, you can't plan for that. No, you can't. And unfortunately, Kevin has had so many issues with, with his knees. Everybody knows about his knee issues, but we you know when you, when your knees give out and your legs aren't stable and you know, you're carrying around 300 pounds, it doesn't surprise me that an accident like that happened or an issue, an injury like that happened. But can I go back just a little bit about Dave? Sure. And you know, this happened at a Chick-fil-A, right? Yeah. Unfortunately. Well, but you, now you, have you let him off the hook? You're still kind of beating him up a little bit over this. Well, here's why I'm beating him up about it. All right. He, he wrecks the damn car. First of all, his SUV is the exact same size as mine. So I feel nothing about throwing in the keys. Like it's not like he's used to driving a Miata and I threw in the keys to an escalate. Our SUVs are the exact same, but you know, wheelbase, no problem. And then he, he tells me that he made the decision to go to Chick-fil-A because he had a coupon. And he could get a free chicken biscuit or something like that. But the, the fucking chicken biscuits going to cost, well, it's going to cost me less. Thanks to rockauto.com. But the point is he doesn't even come back in and say, Hey man, had a, had a snafu, wrecked your car. Instead, he waits like three hours. And then when nobody's around, he says, Hey, I think I owe you an apology. I'm, I maybe might've accidentally scratched a wheel. Now you saw the picture. That's not a, maybe might've accidentally scratched. Brother, that's on the Carfax. No, and that, look, I understand. And I also understand knowing Dave the little bit that I do, not, certainly not as well as you do, but he was probably he was probably so upset he didn't know how to tell you. That would, that would be my first guess, number one, which is the cause for the delay. But I think the cause of the accident, even though he was familiar with the size of the SUV, and as you pointed out, very similar to the one that he owns anyway, is because he was pulling into a Chick-fil-A, for God's sake. you got to <laughs> give the man a little bit of slack. Chick-fil-A is, I mean, that's Chick-fil-A. He was excited. He was hungry. He was excited. I would get excited about pulling into a Chick-fil-A. Do you want to know something else? I had never eaten in a Chick-fil-A until I was on my way to come and see you from Tampa. Really? I I had never eaten in a Chick-fil-A. Now I am a Chick-fil-A addict. And I could certainly understand why young Dave Silva, as excited as he was, driving around that badass Beamer ride of yours, <laughs> saw a Chick-fil-A sign and said to himself, God damn, I got a coupon in my pocket. And he made a hard right turn into the parking lot. He scuffed up the wheel. Yeah, it's pretty ugly. And I'm sure he just felt horrible about it. But you have to consider all of the circumstances. And, and, and you know, because it's kind of mitigated by the fact that it happened on his way to a Chick-fil-A. Man, what is it? You and Arn Anderson both taken up for him. This is bull. Well, it, it, I, it, look, I can put myself in his shoes. It, right now, if I was driving down the road in, in my wife's, she's got a Mercedes. I drive an old truck. But if I'm in my wife's Mercedes and I'm in a hurry, but I realize I've got a coupon for Chick-fil-A, Chick-fil-A in my back pocket, and I have to make a hard right, may cut that cord just a little too close, I might scuff up a wheel or two, too. I get it. Well... I appreciate you trying to be a good friend to him. Let's talk about somebody else who uh, is going to be in a little hot water. Mr. Bobby Heenan, according to Meltzer, missed the nitro, allegedly due to strep throat. 
And Mark Madden was called in at 2 PM on the day of the show about flying in. And the general feeling was he did really well. And JJ Dillon, Terry Taylor, and Bill Bush were all said to be very high on his performance. And Meltzer would say, it's hard to do great when there is nothing great to call, but he was as good and a big improvement over the level Heenan had been working at. Of course, we know Madden's going to permanently replace Bobby on nitro and on pay-per-views after this. What are your thoughts about that? I mean, did you think Madden was the right guy to replace Bobby? And obviously Bobby's an icon, but for whatever reason, he was not the same Bobby Heenan that we grew up on at this point in his WCW run. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I didn't know that history. Um, I, I, I watched the pay-per-view and prep for this show, and I certainly I wasn't there, so I didn't know the backstory and the drama and all the, you know, behind-the-scenes uh, Michigas. Um, that's craziness for all you non-Yiddish-speaking fans. Um, but I did. My first impression when I sat down and watched the show was, wow, Mark Madden. First of all, somebody got him to wear a tie. So, I mean, that's the first thing that I noticed. Mark, Mark Madden's wearing a tie. Um, and second thing I noticed is that he was probably at the top of his game. And again, without knowing any of the drama, any of the backstory relating to Bobby, um, I did make a note, uh, I'm, I'm watching this show, how, how great a job Mark Madden did. So, uh, yeah, hats off to Mark and Dave Meltzer for recognizing it. There you go. Let's keep it moving here. Meltzer would also report after a meeting with the WWF and basically coming out of it with an agreement, Burt Prentice got a better offer from WCW and took it. Actually, Prentice's version of the story is that he told WCW he had a verbal deal from the WWF, but they continued to pursue an agreement. And after two weeks from the uh, January 12th meeting with JR, when Prentice hadn't gotten any paperwork, Prentice then accepted the on paper offer from WCW since it was more lucrative. And that the WCW power plant talent will probably start working for the group on February 11th. This is a blow somewhat to the WWF's developmental situation because Prentice's Nashville territory was supposed to fill the void left by the guys who would work for Randy Hales and Ohio Valley and no longer being allowed to work in Memphis for either Hales or Jerry Lawler, uh, who have gotten in their five shows per week, uh, working Nashville on the weekends. So this is something that has been missing for a long time, sort of a developmental territory for WCW. Did you ever consider doing that? Obviously the power plant is a different concept completely. That's a training facility, but as far as an opportunity to, you know, really, um, have talent work on a consistent basis in front of a crowd, that's something the WWF has had great success with. Was that ever on your radar when you had the reins? Yeah, it was. And, it, it, you know, going back to before I even uh, had the reins, when I was, you know, backing up the backup announcers at WCW, um, that was a subject of, of conversation amongst people like Dusty Rhodes. Uh, Ole Anderson talked about it ad nauseum. In fact, you couldn't have a conversation with Ole Anderson that somehow did not include um, the fact that without a territory, without the fact that talent, you know, yeah, you can learn in a power plant or in a training facility, but until you get out in front of a crowd and really understand how to work a crowd and listen to a crowd and, and time your matches with the ebb and flow of the audience's reactions and things like that, that was the missing link. Uh, Greg Gagne used to talk about it. Uh, a lot as well. So that was a, that was a common kind of point of discussion amongst a lot of people who I had a lot of respect for. And it was clearly a missing link with the power plant. Um, we just didn't have the right relationship, uh, so that it, we could, 
and engage in it and have somewhere consistently where our guys could go and be in front of decent crowds. But I say decent, I don't mean large or small, but you know, a, a, a crowd that was going to react like you would hope a crowd typically would react uh, to, 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 to a wrestling event so that they could learn that we would have it occasionally, but that, that missing link, and it is what WWF has done so well, or WWE now, I should say, has done so well. And it's happened previously. You know, with, It happened with OVW, and it's happened with other smaller independent organizations. But you, know, you, can learn, you can spend 24 hours a day in the power plant or in the performance center or wherever, and you can technically learn as much as you can possibly learn. But until you go out in front of a live crowd and apply that knowledge, it's just theoretical. Uh, and that was definitely an issue for WCW. Let's, uh, keep it moving here. February 3rd, 2000 Vince McMahon announces the XFL. Uh, obviously this recently restarted. Uh, we know what happened the first time he, he's tried to tackle this before we talk about the present day stuff or just briefly touch on it. Were you surprised that Vince decided to, uh, throw his hat in the football ring here? I was a little bit. I, I, you know, again, I didn't know Vince McMahon at the time, and, and had never read about or heard about uh, any real interest in, in on Vince's part in professional football. I, you know, we all knew he was a big bodybuilding fan, and you know, we're familiar with his efforts to break into that industry. Uh, but it, you know, it kind of came out of left field uh, in in terms of the XFL, and I, I was surprised. What was your reaction when you saw? the XFL and execution. Did you think that it was an interesting concept that just fell short or totally missed the mark? what do you think? Um, you know, I'm not, a, I, 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 I'm not a real hardcore NFL fan. You know, I, I'm not a very knowledgeable, uh, NFL fan. So I didn't have a strong opinion to, to me. It seemed, and I, I still feel this way, honestly, um, to me, Sports are so seasonal. Yeah. You know, we've, we've been conditioned, you know, springtime is baseball, right? You know, it was summer. You got NFL training camps, of course, in the summer, but it's really, you know, the fall is when football hits and when football's over basketball kind of swings into its prime. And it just seems to me that we have been conditioned in our culture to, to look at sport as kind of a seasonal, you know, kind of changes with the colors, if you will. Uh, in our culture and it all, it struck me as really odd that there was going to be football in the spring and it still does. I'm still not convinced that football after the Super Bowl is going to be of significant enough interest to sustain itself over the long term. I, uh, I've been wrong about a lot of things before, and I could quite possibly be wrong about that as well. But I still believe that. I think once Super Bowl kind of comes and goes, and it reaches that crescendo of, of interest and excitement and enthusiasm, and then it's off to the next sport. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, if it, if it changes this time, I, you know, I haven't really followed the XFL, the relaunch of the XFL. I know that they're the, the numbers, the ratings at least have softened up a little bit from the, from the debut, uh, games, but the attendance at the live event seems to be picking up. So, you know, maybe they're doing enough things right this time around, uh, to make, to make the difference. Well, we shall see. I know that a lot of my friends are really, really digging it. And, uh, I don't remember hearing that the first time. So. Maybe he's onto something and it sounds like he's got some great television rights opportunities and 
hopefully he's going to make some money. Uh, let's also talk about something else that involves making money. We're talking about Sabu. WCW has some trouble with ECW. Apparently WCW had offered a contract to Sabu and Paul Heyman sued WCW over it. Uh, Meltzer would write in the midst of personal tragedy, Sabu's tenure in ECW appears to be finished for WCW. But this past week, his 71 year old mother suffered two heart attacks. She was stable enough, but still in serious condition by the early part of the week that family members were returning to work. Sabu had agreed to a deal on February 2nd with WCW after uh, talks between the two sides had been going on for at least several days, prompting threats of a lawsuit by Paul Heyman and ECW. Internet reports have listed the figure going around half a million dollars a year, but the general feeling within the industry is the number is nowhere close to that, but probably double what he was earning in ECW. Top pay in ECW is a little under 200,000 per year. Sabu would be near the top of that list. Before we talk about the rest of the report here, um, would you be surprised if top guys in ECW were making $200,000 in 2000? Yeah, I would. And, and I'd even be more surprised if the checks actually cleared the bank. Uh, Meltzer would say what is clear is that Heyman had brunk under contract through January 15th, 2003 on a contract that was signed as of July 29th. The base, the basic claim from one side is that while there was a contract, Heyman had breached it in some form, allegedly due to late payments for pay-per-view money. ECW side is that there was no breach. Although there have been complaints going around that pay-per-view money is being owed and the contract specifically calls in the event of a breach, a letter to be written to give 90 days notice for the company to absolve the breach and that no letter was ever written. Uh, you had this sort of back and forth situation with, uh, with Paul Heyman before where he was threatening for this or that or whatever. Did you ever take any of those very seriously or were you removed from that process and we'll just let legal handle it? Uh, a little bit of both. Um, I, I was exposed to it. I did get involved with it a little bit and more often than not, whenever these situations came up, there was a lot of, uh, really, really thin air with regards to Heyman's claims. And look, I love Paul Heyman. I really enjoyed the time I got to work with him on my, my most recent, uh, stint in WWE. I think he is a really, really talented guy in very many ways. Um, but at this point in time that we're talking about here, um, you really couldn't believe too much of what came out of his mouth. And people that love him to death would tell you the same thing that worked for him. Uh, it just, it, it just was, <laughs> and look, he was, he, he was under a lot of pressure. I mean, the walls were, were collapsing. Uh, the financial walls were collapsing all the way around him and he was doing the best he could to keep everybody on board and keep, keep the ship, you know, floating. Um, so I can see how it happened, but whenever, you know, there were threats of a, a, a lawsuit from, uh, Paul Heyman or ECW not, and after once or twice, nobody took him too seriously. The report from Meltzer is that the plan was to debut Sabu on the February 14th Nitro it was a big surprise at the Nassau Coliseum where he clearly would have gotten a big pop and Heyman and WCW's legal team had a lot of discussions a week prior to that on February 7th. And the gist is. Heyman is saying, I'm willing to sell you the rights to his contract since there's really no upside to his returning to the company at this point, but he needs to get something in return. Is this not exactly what you would expect? Like Heyman just knew, well, I'm not going to get him back. So let's just try to get a check out of it. I mean, that is that sort of standard fare for Heyman at this point. Do you think? 
Yeah, of course it was. And, you know, from to to defend Paul uh, in in his attempt to get something for Sabu, um, you know, Heyman was a part of WCW during a period of time when all you had to do to get a check out of Turner Broadcasting was whisper the word I, or whisper the words, I think I'm going to sue you. Yeah. And if that came with a settlement, you know, anywhere at $999,999, um, you'd get a check. You know what I mean? It just So his attempt to threaten a lawsuit was probably a reflex and one that had worked in the past with a lot of different people, not just Paul. Um, WCW was very inclined to settle anything for under $100,000, no matter how ridiculous it was or meritless it was. Uh, it was just easier to make it go away than it was to, you know, defend it in court. So I, I don't blame him. You know, I might have done the same thing had I been in his shoes. Yeah, good for him. You know, I mean, th- that was what I was going to get to is it does feel like the number. I mean, I've heard many people say, oh, I got 80000 or I got 60000 So it's good to know that. It was sort of a six-figure threshold. So if it's under a hundred, they're probably going to figure something out. No, and, and see, that's and that was a problem with WCW for such a long time because you know, telephone, telegraph, telewrestler. Once you know somebody you know threatens a bogus lawsuit and gets a check, um, that word spreads really, really quickly, <laughs> and and people start lining up, you know, to file bogus lawsuits. But internally, I can tell you, I don't you know, things I'm sure are different now than they were then. But internally, um, the discussion that I heard about, I wasn't involved with it. I wasn't on the legal side of, of Turner Broadcasting was that, look, if, if it's a claim and it's it's 100000 or less, it's easier to make it go away than it is to fight it in court, especially if there's uh, publicity attached to it. And that was how a lot of people got a lot of, you know, serious paydays for no good reason. Well, we're trying to hit, let you hit the serious payday for a great reason. Of course, we're talking about something that Eric and I love talking about. Uh, let's keep it going here. Meltzer would report. There's some slight rearrangements of the hierarchy of WCW. The head booker is Kevin Sullivan. The assistant booker is Terry Taylor. The head television writer is Ed Ferrara and the television editor is Tony Schiavone. Russo was offered the head writer position, but refused unless he's the one running the entire show and refused to come back as part of a booking committee. Cause I guess his contract gives him control of creative Bush at the last statement suggested the two go their separate ways, but Russo isn't looking at giving up his big money contract that easily. What did you heard about in regards to the, the hierarchy when you're having these initial phone calls come in, is that sort of what was laid out to you? That that was the, the crux of the WCW situation at the time. No, we, you know, honestly, we didn't really get into it. You know, I wasn't interested in the drama and the, uh, the shenanigans between all of the different players. I knew it was a shit show. You know, I knew it when I was sitting in that Chili's restaurant, you know, uh, the day after the Super Bowl and I saw talent leaving, you know, and showing up on raw and, and I didn't talk to a lot of people, you know, the, probably the only person I really talked to during that period of time, you know, when I left in September of 99 and now we're talking about, you know, February of 2000, the, the only one that I really talked to uh, on any kind of a regular basis would have been DDP. And I, I, I didn't be careful how I say this because I don't want to hurt his feelings. I didn't really pay too much mind to what he had to say because, and I say that out of love, he's such a positive guy. I mean, he'll look at a 
house burning down and he'll figure out a way to look at it as a positive and try to sell you on that. So as no matter what he was saying and as optimistic as he was trying to be, I, I could see what was going on and I heard enough, you know, from other people, what was going, it was a shit show. And I knew the people involved. I knew the politics and I knew the players in the people that, you know, the, between, you know, Bill Bush and JJ Dillon. And I mean, it, it was a clown car of clusterfuck, uh, at the top. And I, so I didn't really need to know, nor do I care to know, you know, when I talked to Brad, it was like uh, my first call, it was, you know, a lot of dancing around and feeling each other out or him feeling me out to a degree. And, and then it was, okay, what would it take for you to come back? And you got right to the point. And there was really no need to talk about the drama that was going on backstage because, number one, I didn't have anything to do with it. And number two, uh, if I came back, it a lot of shit was going to be changed anyway. So it wasn't really necessary to understand who or why or how things had gotten as fucked up as they were. Let's keep it moving here. Let's talk about uh, an interview that Sting did on the WrestlingObserver.com website with Alex Marvez. When asked about people seemingly not having an idea what to do with this character, he said, quote, nobody feels the frustration of it more than I do. We had a really good thing going. I know what happened to give all the reasons would take too much time. But when things are really working, people find a way to try and break you down because nobody wants you to become too successful. I'm speaking of people within the wrestling business. Vince Russo, who's not with us anymore, told me when I come back, he'd like to have me back as the scary man who comes down from buildings. I don't know what happened with that and how it would come across from a Mark standpoint. If that's the favorite thing they would like to see go again, but I don't know if it's one of those been there, done that ideas either. I don't know if it would work again. And he also says that he was originally scheduled to return on that February 14th nitro, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen. He said he's been in talks of, uh, bringing back his 1980s version of the blonde flat top gimmick, but he said he didn't want to do that. Um, what did you think of, of Sting's comments here that certain people don't want you to become too successful? You know, I, it doesn't sound like something Sting would say or Steve Borden would say. Um, but I would imagine he was very frustrated at that time. He was probably still going through a lot of personal issues at the same time as well, I would imagine. So I think the combination of his personal life and professional life probably brought out some negativity that you might not otherwise, you know, expect to hear from, from Sting. Uh, I certainly don't know what was in his head at the time, so I can't really comment on it. Hulk Hogan, meanwhile, was on the Bubba the Love Sponge show on February, some, uh, February 7th and ripped on WCW for not putting him on Nitro that night, saying the company won't spend money to make money. And he was particularly hard on Billy Kidman saying that Kidman wouldn't be able to headline a flea market wrestling show. And the WCW needs to stick with Goldberg, Sting, Savage, and himself to bring in the ratings. And he says, if he's not on nitro, he can't give them high quarter hours or adequately build up his match with Luger. And he also put over the job. Vince McMahon is doing with the WWF and says, it's no wonder the WWF is kicking their butts when WCW has him and just won't use him. And instead thinks Billy Kidman and those types are main eventers. How much of that is, uh, really Terry Bollea and how much of that is just Hollywood brother? No, that was, you know, that was Terry speaking from the heart. 
um, that wasn't, you know, it's no secret. Terry had no respect for Vince Russo. Neither, neither did I, neither do I. Um, but certainly at that time, uh, Terry had nothing but disdain for him creatively and, and personally, professionally. Um, and it was, you know, Vince, look, you know, when you and I, when you told me we we're going to do this show, I said, okay, I'm, I'm not going to bash. I don't want to just be negative for the sake of being negative because it's, it's easy to do that, especially when you're looking back at something from, you know, 20 years ago and you can pick it apart. And, you know, there was obviously a lot of things wrong at this point. And by the way, a lot of things have been going wrong under my watch as well. It's, it's just so easy to, you know, throw hand grenades, you know, like that. And I, I really wanted to do this show without doing it, but you know, uh, and I, I say this with, I'm trying to say it without any malice, but Vince Russo never had a clue about anything. He was a very emotional guy who had n- no idea how he ended up in the role he was in. He, he, once he got there, he didn't know what to do with it. And his reaction to being in that position was to kind of take, Guys like you know the Mama Luke's and and no disrespect to Billy at all at that time because Billy was phenomenal as a talent, but he wasn't ready for prime time. He wasn't ready to be a main eventer. Neither was Jeff Jarrett, by the way. You know Jeff Jarrett is again I have nothing but respect for Jeff Jarrett more so now than ever in my life since I've known him, but he still was never a main eventer. But Russo had a, a knack for taking the periphery of the talent roster, those guys who would never really get an opportunity to break through and, and have any focus put, them up, put on them. And he would kind of galvanize those people around him to give him support and make him feel uh, more valuable or make him feel like he was on the right track. And he was their biggest you know, cheerleader. And it was just a way for him to kind of cloak himself in the support of a bunch of people when the vast majority of people that really understood what was going on knew that there was nothing under the hood with him. Um, and, you know, you go back and you look at some of the uh, attempts to push certain people into main event positions that just weren't ready for it. And, and Russo's biggest claim was, yeah, yeah we got to get the young guys over. We got to get the young guys over. Well, you know, pushing people before they're ready is not getting them over. It's getting them killed. It's making them irrelevant in the long term because once you try them, once you try to to, to take somebody who's not ready for prime time, throw them in that prime time spot uh, in in a main event or a series of main events and they fail, it, it takes them years to recover from that. And Russo was famous for that and he was, he was a, that's what Russo was doing at this time. He was throwing all the people who would pat him on the back and tell him what a genius he was. He was giving all of those people, you know, great opportunities, kind of playing to the dirt sheet marks who were all clamoring for, you know, younger talent and we got to get young guys over. And I'm not saying that that wasn't true. You know, one of the flaws in my game uh, was not having a broad enough vision or view of the world to know, and, and especially knowing now, you know, it takes three, four, five years to get somebody ready to be in that spot. You can't just do it overnight. You can't just slap a gimmick on somebody like the wall, for example, who is a part of the show or, you know, any number of other people who are on this show. You can't just throw a new gimmick on them, put them in a main event and call them over. They're not. 
And that's what Russo was famous for, and that's what Hogan was probably reacting to more than anything. Let's talk about Scott Hall. Meltzer would say the Scott Hall story has gotten completely ridiculous. Hall, who despite his track record was being pushed for the main event on February 20th as a three-way with Sid Vicious and Jeff Jarrett, appeared while getting on the plane to Germany that he hadn't slept in days, got sick on the plane going over, and was in no condition to perform the first night on the tour. Still, he did wrestle, and his punishment on the 11th in Hamburg was asked to put over Dave Finley, which he did. He got wins over Finley the next two nights, but his condition wasn't described as being much better. There were incidents every night at bars regarding Hall challenging people to fights and even throwing cake at his girlfriend and moaning to many wrestlers about the last breakup of his marriage. As he went to the airport to fly home with the rest of the crew, his condition had worsened to the point authorities wouldn't even allow him on the plane. Terry Taylor, who had apparently had trouble with him all weekend, tried to intervene, but with no success in getting the authorities to just allow him to fly to New York for Nitro. Because of his condition, he missed the Nitro show at the Coliseum, which was supposed to be a major angle to set up the three-way, which led to the booking of a Jarrett Vicious singles match on the show for the U.S. and Jarrett winning. Hall did eventually get back in the U.S. in time for the Thunder tapings the next night in Philadelphia, and there were varying stories over what happened exactly due to these particular incidents, as the issue was going to press. What is confirmed is that in front of the crowd, the show was held up for more than a half hour while they attempted to do the scripted hall promo, which was supposed to end with hall breaking a guitar over Jarrett's head. Hall apparently said something that he might break the guitar over Taylor's head and was taken seriously enough that he was pulled from the angle. Eventually bill Bush made the call that they weren't going to allow hall to do the promo due to his condition. And he left the building with Evan courageous. And there were rumors going around that this was the final straw. Terry Taylor instead took a guitar shot from Jarrett and Hall's future in the company is unclear, but he was telling people that he hadn't shown up late and he felt he had an ironclad contract, uh, but that he might be sat down again. Obviously you hate to see, you know, somebody that you know, like, and trust like this in a bad way. And, and here it is, uh, another, another sad spot in the Scott Hall story. Um, had you heard about this from any of your friends or did you find out the same way everybody did? No, I, I didn't hear about it. Um, it sounds unfortunately like something that Scott was going through back then. It wasn't unusual to have situations that were similar or sounded very similar to that, but I wasn't a part of it. Wasn't really aware of it. Uh, didn't know the details of it, but it doesn't surprise me either. Well, thankfully we should mention, because I feel bad when we tell an old story like that, that's less than favorable. Scott Hall these days is a different guy and he's pulled the nose up. And if you're a wrestling promoter who's listening to this and you're curious, Hey, what's Scott like these days? He's great. Uh, I've done business with him. I know you see him all the time. Uh, he's not only uh, great to deal with, but he's still one hell of a draw, right? Eric? He is one hell of a draw. And I, and I, you, you've heard me say this before Conrad on this show, and I'm sure many of our listeners who live, listen to us regularly have as well. There's, there's few people that I have more respect for in many ways than Scott Hall. He was a train wreck. He was a pain in the ass to do business with. I felt sorry for him. I was angry at him. I, I just covered the gamut of emotions having to do business with him. Um, 
but I can tell you some of the brightest spots in my career involved Scott Hall. And when I see him today, when, when I go to conventions or autograph signings and I see Scott today, it's probably one of the brighter spots for me because I see a guy who genuinely appreciates probably for the first time in his life in, in, in the way he does right now, generally genuinely appreciates the relationship he has with his fan base. It's probably something new to him since he's gotten sober. Um, you know, during this period of time, you know, we we're talking 20 years ago. Uh, I don't think Scott knew who he was or where he was half the time. And he certainly didn't take the time to, you know, reflect on how lucky he was and fortunate he was, you know, to have a strong fan base and to be making a lot of money and all the perks that go with the industry. He was too caught up in his own muck at that period of time. But when you see Scott now, he's like the first one to, to the building and he's the last one out and he never leaves anybody hanging for an autograph. Even after the time is up and he should be on his way out the door, if there are kids come, uh, coming up to him or adults, it doesn't matter, coming up to him and asking for an autograph, he, he'll stop and not only give them the autograph, but make them feel really important and make eye contact with them and engage with them. Not just signing an autograph, but really making them feel important. And I, I love seeing that. I love seeing when guys like in, in my era, our era, well, not yours, you're a kid still, but you know, guys, you know, I was with a couple of them this, this week in Qatar, you know, to see Kevin Nash and, you know, Mark Henry and Rob Van Dam and see young kids who remember these guys, um, and, and see their eyes light up when they get to meet them. And then also see the talent, take the time to make people feel important. Uh, it, it, it makes me, it makes me smile. And Scott is one of those guys right now. So yeah, if you're thinking about booking Scott Hall, I couldn't recommend him highly enough. He's great with, he's great with your audience. And if you're a fan and you see uh, Scott advertising an event near you to Eric's point, go see him. You're going to get a personal connection. You're going to feel like, you know, him and he knows you. It's not just a smile and sign and on to the next one. It's a real interaction. Let's keep it moving here. Dave Meltzer would report that hard body Harrison. And of course, uh, hard work, Bobby Walker and your old friend, Sonny Ono filed for a racial discrimination lawsuit against WCW on February 11th in federal court. The gist is the lawsuit claims all three were forced to portray demeaning stereotypical roles as minorities in pro wrestling and not allowed to get roles reserved for white performers and also claim that the white performers earned more money than their minority counterparts. Uh, of course, this is going to be something that we've talked a little bit about, but I think the, uh, I don't know the gist of this part of it feels like, okay, maybe they're actually looking for, you know, change and trying to help out. But then at the same time, I don't know how I feel about this one. What say you, what'd you think about this lawsuit? Well, I was again, disappointed to hear it for a, a, a number of reasons, but again, I sound like I'm beating up on Vince Russo. I don't have the exact quote that Russo, uh, statement that he made, but essentially made a statement publicly that, you know, U.S. wrestling fans don't want to see Asians or Mexicans. They want to. They want to. They want to see American wrestlers. I mean, he basically, you know, took a giant shit on anybody that wasn't born in Utah, 
and that came to bite him in the ass. You know, it, 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 I mean, Sonny was, per, was very offended by it. He was the only person that I talked to, obviously, about it. I didn't really comment to Sonny on whether I thought he should or he shouldn't. But the fact that Russo, who was representing a Turner company, publicly makes a statement basically telling everybody that he doesn't want any Asians on his show because the American audience doesn't care about him. I mean, how fucking stupid could one person be without, you know, working really hard at it? And that opened the door. And, you know, Sonny ended up, you know, sending his kids to Wharton and Harvard and all kinds of other really expensive colleges as a result of it. Yeah, I didn't realize that. I thought it was just, uh, hey, I shouldn't be an enhancement talent. And I'm like, well. No, no, there's a lot more to it. I, and I wish I, I should have done my research. I apologize. But there was a statement. Sure, I'm sure you can find it somewhere. There was a statement that Rousseau made. Like I said, he's, I, he either said it to a, a dirt sheet or he said it in an interview. But the, the language was so it, it was so damning that I'm sure any attorney in the world would have been happy to have an opportunity to, to chase that one. By the way, it's worth mentioning Hardbody Harrison is in prison for, uh, sex slavery, being a pimp, whatever the proper term for that is in Georgia. Uh, let's talk about the show that WCW was pimping here. It's super brawl 2000. Uh, the show opens with a skit where Jarrett comes out of a dressing room, uh, with the models and gives the impression that he had just beaten up Kevin Nash and thus the, he is now the commissioner again. And he orders the Harris brothers to be reinstated. Uh, you watched this for the first time in a long time. What did you make of this opening skit and, and Jeff Jarrett and his Bob V the glasses? Um, can we just move on? <laughs> I just, it was pretty horrible. It was, it was pretty, it was, it, yeah, it was just bad. It was just, it was just silly bad. Next up, we get the artist formerly known as Prince Iakea in a match with Lash LaRue for the vacant WCW cruiserweight title. This is a tournament finale. They get five minutes and 47 seconds. Meltzer gave it uh, half a star. I don't know. Not the best match these guys ever had. It does. Uh, it does feel like a lot different cruiserweight title finale. You know, a few years prior, we had Dean Malenko and Rey Mysterio and Hooventud and Chris Jericho and on and on and on. And now we've got Prince fucking Ikea. I, you're going to, you're going to hate me for saying this, but I, I thought it was an entertaining mat. I thought it was entertaining as hell. No, it is. I, I, I'm not going to argue that it wasn't good. And it was better than what they were doing before. I don't know if you remember, but they had Oklahoma out there rolling around with Medusa covered in barbecue sauce for this belt. So at least it's more serious, but I'm just saying I, it stands out to me that it's not Ray. It's not Dean. It's not, it just no. feels like a different WCW cruiserweight division than I remember. No, and yes, I mean that's a great, great way to look at it. it. It's it certainly wasn't you know Ray and Eddie and Dean and Chris Benoit and you know so many of the great you know uh, luchadors and the new New Japan team that made the cruiserweight division such a, a, a phenomenon. It wasn't that, but it, just looking at that match for what it was, I loved Prince Ikea's character, and I don't know who came up with it. If it was Vince Russo, it was probably the only good idea he's ever had. Um, if it was somebody else, and hats off to them. But I love. I loved his character and I think he did it really, really well. And Lash LaRue, when I, when I saw these guys walking out, cause you know, I worked with Lash for a little bit, but he didn't stand out in my mind. I was expecting the absolute worst when I saw this match, you know, developing. Um, 
But as I watched it, I was I was entertained as hell by it. I really I really dug it. And and who and <laughs> oh, the artist formerly known as Prince's Valet. That I really got a kick out of. Charmelle, you, Charmelle, you look great, honey. You really did. You looked awesome. Afterwards, we get to uh, cut backstage where Norman Smiley is getting his ribs taped up before his match. And we see a locked door with a big question being who's behind it. I wish I knew who was behind this. We get Brian knobs and bam, bam, Bigelow working for the WCW hardcore title, which is probably the most nonsensical belt in wrestling. Uh, Dave Finley comes out and he's supposed to be Nobs second, but nobody really knows what he's supposed to do and whose side he's on. And, uh, I think Brian Nobbs and Dave Finley are dressed like a couple of middle-aged dads at a no limit soldiers concert, <laughs> uh, but either way, Brian Nobbs and bam, bam, tear it up here for four minutes and 44 seconds. Nobbs gets the win. He's your new hardcore champion, a quarter star. I don't know. I didn't really love the WCW hardcore division. I don't think I'm alone. No, I fucking hated it. It was horrible. The whole idea was horrible. I hated hardcore matches. I still do to this day. I never want to see, if I never see another garbage can come out from under the ring or another stupid fucking pie pan or any of the other assortments of garbage that people think is interesting to watch in a wrestling match, it'll be one week too soon to the day. That being said, did you notice that Brian Nobbs had a little bit of a suntan going on? I did. He he was going to win. He knew he had to have a tan. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. He, and it wasn't even a tan, by the way, it was a burn. Because I, he probably, and somebody probably said, "Hey, Brian, you're you're you're, you're, you're going to be in a pay per view. You're going to be in this hardcore match. You should get a tan." His hair actually looked pretty decent, you know, for Brian Knobs. He actually tucked his shirt in for a minute. You know, he looked, he looked like he was actually trying. He looked, he looked pretty good for Brian Knobs. And I did notice that he had that kind of almost lobster pink kind of sunburn going on. So he must've spent about, you know, 32 minutes in a tanning bed about an hour before the show. You got some real high flyers around here uh, and some really talented performers. Shannon Moore, I think is criminally underrated. You see some early hurricane here at his best Norman Smiley. What a great comedy character. He was uh, a great technical wrestler, but once he got the big wiggle over it, man, that's what people were there to see. This gets one star, but three on one. I don't know about that. What do you think? Yeah, the three on one it was just too hard to believe. But I, 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 I don't want to comment about how many stars somebody gave. It's just a subjective sure. opinion. I thought the match was entertaining as, as hell. I really, I laughed watching it. I was so impressed with the talent. You know, Evan Courageous forgot how you know great he was. Shannon Moore, you're right. He is criminally underrated. He was. I don't know if he was at his peak at this point, but he was so good. Uh, Shane Helms, same thing. These guys were great together. I love the gimmick as corny as it was, and it was designed to be corny. It was a Jimmy Hart, you know, creation, by the way, uh, hats off to Jimmy. Um, I thought it was fantastic. I really did. Norman can't say enough good things about Norman. I, enter, I love this match. I had a great time watching it and, you know, in reviewing this show, I thought it was, for me, it was one of the highlights of the show. Really, uh, it was uh, not what I expected you to say, but I can't wait to hear your opinion on the next one. It's what? What did you expect me to say? I don't know. I thought you'd dump on it. Why? It was fun. No, it was fun, but 
I don't know the three on one thing. I thought, boy, Eric's going to hate this. Well, I do, I do hate it. You just got to write that off. It was a stupid idea from the get go, but you know, it wasn't the talent's fault. The talent did the best they could with what they were given. Um, you know, I can make fun of whoever put that match together all day long and criticize them and they would deserve it. And then some, but once the bell rang, the guys did a phenomenal job making it entertaining. And I, and if you look at the athletics, you know, go back and watch that. This is, this is some high quality cruiserweight level work, you know, in that ring with three guys who were really, really green, by the way, they were very green at the time. We should also mention that the, uh, the next match is going to be the time when, uh, as I read the recap, uh, you're going to get the, 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 what I call the red ass because Meltzer really took you to task on this and you weren't even there. Uh, no, imagine that wall, the wall is going to get a win over the demon in three minutes and 37 seconds. Yes. This is a pay-per-view match. Uh, Meltzer would say this was actually billed as a co-main event. The nonsensical reason for this is that in Eric Bischoff's contract with kiss, it guaranteed the character, a certain number of pay-per-view main event matches. Good Lord. Um, I don't know. Uh, the, the entrance for the demon is out of this world. Really something to behold. The wall has left us way too early. I know people look back at the wall and say, ah, ha ha LOL wall, but Jerry too had great size and, uh, had a really cool look. I thought for what it was and had a potential upside, but you know, he unfortunately left this earth way, way too soon. This match though, really sucked negative one star, uh, but it does get the first reaction of the show. Very loud, boring chance. Uh, you saw this one for the first time in a long time. What'd you think? Yeah, it was horrible. The look, the, the demon character, you know, when we were negotiating with Gene Simmons and kiss to, to, you know, launch it, um, the idea on paper would have been a phenomenal idea had Gene Simmons and Kiss been involved on an ongoing basis as, you know, the original plan uh, called for. But once that deal fell apart, you know, to continue to use that character, just, uh, it, well, it is what it is or was what it was. It was, it was a bad idea uh, made only worse by a match like this because neither one of these guys were capable of having a pay-per-view quality match. Unfortunately, let's keep it moving here and let's talk about, uh, well, the biggest thing that's going to happen on this show, Ernest Miller is going to do an interview where he's promising James Brown is going to be there and they keep showing the secret locked door and you have to wonder who's there, but next up we get big Al strutting that ass here. Uh, and what looks like, uh, I guess he looks like an extra from sons of anarchy and he's going to take on tank Abbott. And the goal here is to fetch the leather UFC jacket from a pole. That's right. Leather UFC jacket on a pole match. It goes four minutes and 34 seconds. <laughs> uh, Meltzer says tank should never go one minute and 34 seconds. This was a combination of really stiff blows and bad language. Abbott sold real big for his buddy. They were by pro wrestling standards, totally potatoing each other with blows. And the crowd had no idea how to take this, but it wasn't a positive confusion. Uh, seriously, these guys are punching the shit out of each other and both using extremely foul language on each other right on camera. And then at one point, big Al just stands on tank Abbott's face with his hands on the ropes and then removes his hands. So it's just boots on face for a minute. And then, uh, tank Abbott throws big Al on his shoulder, starts to climb the ropes. 
as he's trying to climb to the pole and big Al takes a tumble. He doesn't die. Uh, and then tank Abbott fetches the jacket, but then he decides, you know what? I'm going to go finish him off. And he puts a knife to his throat and says, I could fucking kill you right now. The director pulls away and Tony Schiavone's trying to think on his feet and says, I think he had scissors and he was trying to cut his beard or his goatee or whatever. He's thinking on his feet here as best he can quarter star. What do you make of the leather jacket on a, on a pole and the, uh, we're going to pull a knife and threaten to fucking kill each other. I'm going to be really honest with you and tell you that as I was prepping for this show, I got to this match and I thought, oh, I'll just fast forward through this because I just, <laughs> I, I, I didn't, I didn't think there was any real reason to watch it, Sure, but I, I ran into tank, uh, kind of, did, did you book him at Starcast? Oh, yeah, he was at Starcast in Vegas. Yeah. I, I ran into the tank at Starcast and it was the first time I had seen him in a long time. And we sat down and we visited and reconnected for the first time in 20 some odd years. And I thought, oh, I'll watch it. Just, just. You know, to see what it was like. Um, I, I got vertigo. It was so crazy. I mean, my head was spinning. It was the most bizarre thing I can recall seeing in a wrestling match in God knows how long. And I, I mean, I, we've all seen some bizarre stuff, but it was designed to be bizarre, right? This was just fucking insane. Yeah. The idea of a UFC leather jacket on a pole right from the get go. It was a stupid idea, which is one of the reasons I thought about fast forwarding through, through it. I just, I, you, you put something on a pole. I'm not going to watch it. Right. I don't care what it is. Right. Well, wait, wait, hang on. There's some things we could put on a pole and we would watch. Yeah, there are, but we're not going to talk about them. <laughs> They're not going to happen in an arena f- filled with five or 10,000 people. Correct. But I thought, no, I'll watch it anyway. And then I'm in, in, you know, Tank never knew how to throw a working punch. No, never. No. And I'm, I'm watching this and it's a clear, and it was a great camera shot, you know, maybe two feet away, nice and wide. And I see tank throw a left that connected and I went, holy shit. These guys are killing each other out there for real. And they were how the hell they left there with their teeth and jaws and shit intact. I'll never know. They were beating each other to death. And then that the point where you we were talking about <laughs> where he stands on Tank's face, oh. and I'm he wasn't like leaning into the ropes and splitting half of his weight. I mean, he was standing. He, what was he weighing? Two forty minimum. He's and both feet. He wasn't working it. That neither one of these guys could work a thing. Nothing. They didn't know how to work. And he's standing right on his face for the longest time. And I'm thinking, how the hell are they doing this? And then you're right. I saw him. as saying, you know, has him up over his shoulders, and he starts climbing up the pole. Unreal. With with the guy on his back. I'm thinking, oh, this is this has got to go south quick. And then it did. And then the incident where you talked about, and of course the camera picked it up. Tank's got a pair of scissors right in his throat. And goes, I knife. can fucking kill you right now. Not scissors, I thought, oh, my God, this is insane. A goddamn knife, Eric, not scissors. Was it a knife? Yeah. Tony oh. called it scissors. It's a fucking knife. Oh my God. They had a fucking knife fight over a leather UFC jacket on a pole. Oh my 
God, I'd like to know who the agent was. For, we should get Kevin Sullivan on the Sullivan on the phone next week and 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 dig into this one because this is worth talking about. Oh my God! Let's try that. Let's try to get Sullivan on the phone next week and dig into the background on this. I'd like to hear. Of course, Kevin probably loved it knowing Kevin Sullivan. This is probably his kind of match. No. He probably he's probably getting it all. He's probably getting off on it. Yeah, beating the shit out of each other. I'm sure. He, oh yeah, he loved that kind of stuff. Next up. Something nobody loved. Big T, the former Ahmed Johnson, taking on Booker. And uh, this is a, a match for the letter T. And you've told us before that we need stakes. And someone in WCW got the memo because the prior stake was a pay per view rivals promotional leather jacket on a pole. And here it's the leather T. This is essentially a Sesame Street death match. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to make it clear to anybody who, for whatever reason, if you're just now dropping into this show, I had nothing to do with this. <laughs> I had absolutely nothing to do with this, right? I didn't have a conversation. I didn't have a syllable of a conversation with anybody about anything to do with the show. Okay, let's keep going. Yeah, this match is something else, man. First of all, this Ahmed Johnson uh, looks like he ate the old Ahmed Johnson. <laughs> Uh, this is not the same guy at all. He's changed his gear. He's changed his body. This is a different person. Uh, and there is a spot in the match at Meltzer, by the way, says this is probably the worst match of Booker T's career. Not that it's his fault, uh, but eventually, uh, Booker makes a drop kick off the top. The lights go out. And, uh, when they come back on, there is a giant human on the, uh, apron. And this person, uh, used to be the bodyguard for, no limit soldiers. And I think they called him swole Booker T is going to stare at him. That allows big T to come from behind with his old Pearl river plunge. Thankfully it's over five minutes, 23 seconds, negative one star, man. I just needed this one to be over. I, I understand what they were going for, I guess, but this was just a major miss for me. Ooh, this was so bad. It, this was so bad. It was worth watching. This is if, if you're, if you're an aspiring writer or producer or even talent, and you want to get a feel of exactly what never, ever to do study this match. I mean, the storyline, the setup was, it, I, I kind of get it. You know, if I try really, really hard, I understand, you know, the premise was that, you know, Booker T was kind of turning his back on, you know, his old hood and where he grew up and the people that he grew up with. And Stevie Ray was, you know, still part of that whole world and, you know, was more rooted in, in, in it and, and Booker was moving on beyond it. So I, I, okay. I, I could almost buy that premise as being a halfway decent premise, you know, brother versus brother, but then this match happened. And oh my God, did it go down the toilet in a big, that was what it's like. One of those turds that never flushes. It was so bad. First of all, let me just give you major props for saying he had turned his back on the hood. Uh, because I didn't expect, you know, I don't know. You listen to rap music. You've told us that I didn't expect you to be dropping the knowledge like that. Brother. I grew up in Detroit. What do you think? Do you think I was born in Cody, Wyoming? I'm learning things. I'm learning things. Here's what I am learning. Maestro doing a promo here says if James Brown shows up, he'll listen exclusively to James Brown music. But if Brown doesn't show up that the cat will have to listen exclusively to Beethoven. So there's stakes. <laughs> oh my God. 
Oh uh, my God. Here we go. This, Next, this was horrible. It was but, all terrible. Everything about it was terrible. This is arguably one of the worst pay-per-views in history. I liked it when James Brown came out though. Well, you're, you're getting ahead of us. Billy Kidman and Vampiro go seven minutes and 20 seconds. They don't have any heat, but it's clearly the, uh, the best match on the show up to this point, uh, two and a quarter stars. Uh, I think these are two very talented performer. Tori Wilson. Look, is as looking as right as rain here. Uh, so this is my favorite thing on the show so far. How about you? Yeah. I, well, I don't know if it would be my favorite thing on the show, but I, I, I did. I love Billy's work. I really did. I've always, I've, you know, it's funny for me. Vampiro was either really hot or really cold. He, he, he wasn't a consistent performer for me. And admittedly, I just didn't dig his character. It, it was too dark. It didn't evoke the kind of emotion that I felt was really marketable. It, it's a little bit like Scotty Levy, you know, it, it, the, I get the whole grunge thing and the, you know, fighting the, you know, the battle within all the other horseshit that goes along with that type of a character. I get it. I, I intellectually, I guess I understand it, but it just doesn't seem like something that's really marketable to me. And Vampiro was a little bit the same way. I didn't, and I, you know, that character would really, I could see how it would have worked in a Lucha environment. Um, but here in the States, it was hit or miss for the most part. And Vampiro's work was either really, really good or not at all. And Billy, on the other hand, I, I think go back and watch this. It's a, not quite a Billy Kidman highlight reel, but damn close. And you're absolutely right about Tori. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Indeed. Let's keep it moving. Talk about the next match here. we got big Vito and Johnny, the bull taking on, um, David flair and crowbar 11 minutes and 22 seconds. Uh, I guess we should mention this is a Sicilian stretcher match and there is some really nonsensical shit here where they've got to put the guys on a stretcher and keep them there. They're doing this ridiculous athletic tape to do that. Instead of just using the goddamn straps that are already on the fucking stretchers. Like he would use in real life. It gets half a star, but everybody has to sell this silly tape, including Daphne. Really. They did no favors to anybody here. Big Vito, uh, a pretty decent performer. Great. I mean, a pay-per-view wrestler for sure. Johnny, the bull had a million dollar look crowbar criminally underrated. David flair doing his best trying to figure some shit out. And there's Daphne and what a creative little trio they were. But for me, man. This tape piece of business on this just ruined the whole thing. I, I, this match could not get over fast enough for me. It was everything I could do, not just to skip over it. And it was, I think the only reason I didn't is, you know, because of the tie in with Arn and Ric Flair and all that, but it just, ugh, it was horrible, 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 horrible. A Sicilian strap match. What in the hell? Yeah. Uh, let's keep they should have beat each other up with pepperonis or something. At least it would have made some kind of sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. They could have had. They could have been. They could have been tossing frozen pizzas at each other and knocked somebody out with a frozen pizza. I'd have bought it. This thing was ridiculous. Let's talk about uh, your boy, James Brown. He's going to make an appearance here. Uh, well, it's a fake James Brown. That's who Ernest Miller brings out. Maestro and Symphony come out. And, uh, they're not happy about this and it feel like they've won their deal. And then of course the real James Brown comes out with a huge entourage. Maestro faints. 
uh, Ernest Miller and James Brown dance. Nobody expected this, uh, but the, the crowd really got to see a big star here. What's weird about this is it was never really promoted that the real James Brown was going to be here. And this couldn't have been cheap. Uh, what did you think of, uh, the use of him on pay-per-view and not TV and not really promoting it in a major way? Uh, well, I wasn't a part of putting it together, so there may have been reasons for it. Maybe they weren't, you know, sure it was actually going to come together until the last minute. I mean, there's so many variables that you, you know, you, you just don't know about, um, that could have been taking place. So I'm, I'm not going to be critical of not promoting him as being there live. And I'll also say sometimes that just works. Sometimes when you have an opportunity to over deliver, uh, a big star like this, who is a huge surprise, who hasn't been promoted, there's more equity long-term in a decision like that than making an extra, you know, 50 grand at the door. And, and, and I'm, I'm not against that, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm very pro over delivering when you have that opportunity. So I'm, I'm really not going to criticize the fact that they didn't promote him when they had him. I liked the way they used him. I, I, I liked the fact that they kind of swerved everybody. And of course, everybody thought for sure that Ernest was full of shit and that James Brown was not going to appear. And then when they brought out the fake James Brown, they were absolutely convinced he wasn't going to show up. And, and Ernest started getting the heat and he sold it magnificently. And then the real James Brown shows up in a highly entertaining way. And then to see James Brown and Ernest in there dancing together, having an absolute blast, I loved it. And I, you know, I, I love Ernest. He's truly one of my my best friends in the wrestling business, and I, I I can't say enough great things about him. Ernest Miller was my son's karate instructor. He's been a friend of my family now for God twenty five thirty years. Um, he's he is one of the really really good people in the professional wrestling business, and to this day spends so much of his time working with kids in, in different parts of the city, some underprivileged kids that look up to him in a very positive way in martial arts. Great guy. And to see someone like Ernest, who I know is having the time of his life in there with James Brown, who is an icon. Um, I just thought it was awesome. Well, what I thought was awesome is that you guys put Ric Flair and Terry Funk on a pay-per-view here. I guess it's not you guys, but I, I was going to say, I had, I was going to call an audible on that one, but go ahead. Flair and Funk, Texas death match, 15 minutes and 40 seconds. I don't think everybody's clear on the stipulation. Certainly not the ref performers and announcers. Nobody's on the same page, but, uh, I, I guess the goal is you've got to answer the 10 count and, uh, either way, they finally get through it. There's multiple pinfalls. But that's not the end of the match. It's whoever can't answer uh, the 10 count afterwards. Ultimately, the nature boy gets the win. 15 minutes, 40 seconds, two and a quarter stars. They're chopping the shit out of each other for real to the point that they're, they got blood coming out of their chests. Uh, pretty remarkable that Funk's going to the top rope for a moonsault through the table. And then uh, he winds up taking a nesty plunge backwards through the table. Uh, these guys are, especially Terry Funk here, man, well past the expiration date for doing bumps like that, but middle-aged and crazy, that may not just be a gimmick that may have been a shoot, uh, even though they weren't at the, uh, the best of their entire career. I enjoyed this for what it was. I'm curious to hear your take. Terry Funk. I'm doing math in my head. I think he's 75 right now. He's, I think he's about 10 years older than me. 
he would have been what 55 years old yep. when this match took place. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, yeah, it's incredible. And Terry, Terry is one of the, he's such a great guy. Have you had a chance to spend any time with Terry Funk? A, a ton of time. Great guy. He's everybody's grandpa, the nicest guy ever. Um, and, and, and I hear he's finally going to start making appearances again. He's sort of become a bit of a recluse since his, his longtime wife died. And, uh, she really was his rock. And now he's had to sort of figure out life again. And I think he's going to get out of the house a little more and get with his wrestling family. I think he's even stepping in for Jim Ross to host the cauliflower alley reunion club banquet, which will be uh, really nice for him to catch up with old friends and, and reunite with his old wrestling family. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've had a chance, you know, I, I worked with Terry, uh, briefly in WCW, but which means absolutely nothing that what I cherish the most is a couple of car rides that he and I had together on the road and just, you know, to hear him tell stories and, you know, bring up some of the you know great matches and things that happened backstage and on the road, just listening to him tell stories is it makes, you know, having an opportunity to be in the wrestling business worth it. He's just a great, great guy. And the history, you know, Ric Flair and, and Terry Funk goes back to, I think, 1989 or 1990. So they had a long, you know, history together. And, you know, to see this match and to see these two guys working together again, even at this stage of Terry's career, was uh, it was fun for me to watch this one. Let's talk about something that was in the news in this era. I can't believe this is real. Um, Meltzer report, Ric Flair officially isn't running for governor of North Carolina. He missed the Republican <laughs> filing, but talked about running on the reform party ticket, but clearly he'd have no chance as an independent. Realistically, it seems it was more of a publicity stunt to test the waters and something he was seriously going to do. I don't know why, but the idea that some fans thought that that actually might happen really makes me laugh out loud of all the people who are going to run for politics. Let me assure you now the person it will not be is Rick Flair. <laughs> well you know keep in mind you know this is before twitter and social media i mean the internet was a thing obviously back then but not to the extent that it is today uh uh, he he ain't got skeletons he's got goddamn graveyards come on (laughs) oh don't make me laugh oh my god yeah no he's got a sauce he's got a small city of skeletons in his closet. Yeah, absolutely. There's a census. He makes me look good. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, by comparison, come on. All right. Here's another match that we, uh, we didn't think we would see not as a main event, but here it is. Hulk Hogan in the red and yellow, take it on the total package. Lex Luger, eight minutes and 10 seconds. Just a few years prior to this, these guys set a cable record. Uh, when they switched the world title in 1997, Hogan's going to get the biggest pop by far coming out. No surprise there. Typical Hogan match, I suppose, uh, gets one star, but we should mention this is the first time we see sting in a long time. Uh, Flair's going to run in after the match to attack Hogan and he's going to start double teaming him with Luger. Sting makes the save. The last time we saw sting and Hogan, Hogan was laying down for sting at Halloween havoc for no reason that was ever explained. Uh, and then the time before that sting turned on Hogan, hitting him with the bat. Of course, none of that's acknowledged here. It feels like it's just a hard reset one star, but man, this match really just stands out because the last time I remember Hulk Hogan and Lex Luger, it was August the 97 and the crowd's just going absolutely bananas. Fast forward. 
And it doesn't seem like the fans care all that much at all. Yeah, it didn't seem like Sting cared that much either. I mean, if you go back and watch this one and watch it really closely, when Sting, you know, makes the save, very little real connection between his character and Hogan's character. Yeah. It was, uh, I don't you know, Sting never phoned it in, but this was about as close to phoning it in as you could probably get. Um, that moment, had they, had they milked that moment the way it could have been milked and let that play out and, you know, do some Shakespeare in there and let the audience engage in it, 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 it that moment could have eclipsed the rest of the match and made it, but it didn't happen. You know, watch it really closely. There's almost very little eye contact until the very, very end between the two. So I was, I was a little surprised. Well, I'll tell you what, these days if Sting was going to phone it in, he'd phone it in with boost mobile because boost mobile gives you everything you could want in a wireless carrier. So you know exactly what you're getting and exactly what you're paying for. Check this out with no annual service contract. Boost mobile still offers a range of unlimited data plans and the latest phones from top brands at affordable prices. Service plans already include taxes and fees, plus mobile hotspot, unlimited streaming music, and much, much more. So step up with Boost Mobile. And how about this? Smartphones are expensive, so don't force the family to wrestle over one phone. Step up with Boost Mobile and get four free Samsung Galaxy A20 phones when you switch. How about that? Now, by the way, when you switch to Boost Mobile today, you're going to get four lines for just $25 per line per month with unlimited data. You'll also get four free Samsung galaxy, a 20 phones, perfect for the whole family. And of course, a super reliable, super fast nationwide network to keep you connected. Switch to boost mobile. Now, what are you waiting for? Switch right now, step up with boost mobile and switch today. Of course, this is a limited time offer while supplies last new customers only requires port and activation from eligible carrier. One free device per line users using more than 35 gigabytes of data during a billing cycle may be deprioritized during times of network congestion offers and coverage not available everywhere. See boostmobile.com or a retailer for full details. I don't know how they're making money with this dude. Four lines, four phones. That's a hell of a deal. I don't know either. We've been talking about this now for a while and it just, they just keep, it's a gift that keeps on giving for crying out loud. Um, it's it's like the a Christmas sale 365 days a year. It's it's amazing. It, a hell of a value. Go to boostmobile.com, take a look at these phones and then realize it's four lines for just $25 per line per month. Unlimited data? Come on. Uh let's keep it going. Sid Vicious, three-way dance, Scott Hall, Jeff Jarrett. Sid's coming in, your world champ, and uh Scott Hall's going to decide to prove something. He's very good in the ring here, as was Jarrett. Meltzer would say the problem was there was little to the match besides beating up refs and no time to do it. Billy Silverman took one of the all time worst bumps ever to go out first. And then vicious would choke slam both guys at the same time, but no ref Nick Patrick comes in for a series of near falls. And after the first ref bump atrocity, uh, Jeff Jarrett uses the stroke on Patrick. Eventually, uh, one of the Harris twins is supposed to, uh, hit Jeff Jarrett with a chair. And Scott Hall goes to pin him. Charles refer- Charles Robinson's the referee. And then Jarrett just uses the stroke on Robinson and Mickey J until Mark Johnson runs in. And that's when Scott Hall uses the edge on jo- on Jarrett and Johnson counts the two and then starts to sell a shoulder injury. 
and the crowd is totally dead by this point, according to Meltzer, because of all the ref bumps that have gone to the point of redundancy. And then we see who was behind the door. This whole show it's Roddy Piper. He's got one arm in a sling due to a torn bicep from several months back. And then Piper is going to uh, deck Johnson. Jarrett hits hall with a guitar shot and vicious choke slams, both uh, Jarrett and hall and power bomb Scott hall for the pin. It gets a star in three quarters, but the scary scene is, and this isn't shown on the pay-per-view Scott hall's hurt pretty bad. They think it's a possible spinal cord injury. They take him right to the uh, hospital and uh, he's going to wind up getting an MRI and said to have weakness on the right side of his body. And a preliminary diagnosis is a bulging disc. Lots of skepticism because of the, uh, incident he had overseas. People are saying, is this curious timing? Others are saying, well, maybe he's just milking it to get paid. Like a lot of other guys have done in WCW. Uh, but at least it looks legit when you go back and take a look, at least to me, what'd you think of the main event? Uh, and what'd you think of all the nonsensical ref bumps and Piper out of nowhere, back to back here, staying in the last match, Piper in this match, we're trying to bring you a surprise, which seems like an Eric Bischoff hallmark. Yeah, I mean, well, they did deliver a surprise. You know, Piper indeed was a surprise, but there was it was such a cluster. I mean, literally just listening to, you know, and I watched it and then listening to you recap it, I almost threw up in my mouth. It's just, it was, it's, it, it, it's, I don't even know how to describe how ridiculous that whoever laid that match out should have never been able to lay out another match in the rest of his or her career. It was just fucking horrible as a as a match it just and nothing to do with the talent you know the talent again and maybe the talent was involved in that as well but that many ref bumps it just it, it was so it defies any sense of logic and or entertainment I, I don't i don't know what the goal was i don't know who laid it out it doesn't really matter but by the time roddy came out i just i didn't even care anymore yeah, I think the audience felt the same way when it came to the wrestling observer reader poll, it got eight and a half percent thumbs up 88.7% thumbs down 2.8% thumbs in the middle. The best match poll went to, uh, Vampiro and Billy Kidman. The worst match poll went to wall and demon pretty forgettable pay-per-view pretty forgettable time in WCW, uh, much different than the prior super brawls. But thankfully help is on the way you're on your way back to WCW and we're going to hit the reset button. And we're going to talk about what that looks like in the coming weeks, but you watched this for the first time in a long time. What'd you think? It was horrible. A definite thumbs down. It had no really redeeming characteristics other than a couple bright spots in a couple of matches but for the most part as a pay-per-view it was possibly one of the worst i think i've watched well we're going to keep it going because next week we've got a march 6th 2000 nitro watch along and uh to say this is an interesting nitro or i don't know a less than great nitro is an understatement the main event is jeff Jarrett in the wall taking on sid vicious and vampiro We've also got Stevie Ray and big T taking on Booker T and, uh, Billy Kidman. We've got Norman Smiley with the idol. We got Kurt Henning and Ric Flair. We got the dog and Evan courageous. We got David Flair in the wall. We got big Vito and Ron Harris. We got Kaz Hayashi and psychosis. It goes down at Chapel Hill, North Carolina. That's what we're doing next week here on the show. The following week, 
we're going to watch an episode from 1999. That'll be March 8th, 1999. Then we'll revisit on March 16th, uncensored 95. We've, uh, we've talked about this one before, but I thought it was worth revisiting since our show has evolved a little bit since then on March 23rd, it'll be uncensored 2000 on March 30th. Our most requested topic ever stings 1997 on April 6th, the show I've looked forward to for a long time. It's the nitro restart from April of 2000. Perhaps the most controversial show on the docket is April 13th. It's TNA lockdown 2010. And, uh, a lot of fans got excited when we said we were finally going to talk about a little lockdown action and what a card this is. We've got team Hogan with abyss, Jeff Hardy, Jeff Jarrett, and Rob Van Dam on one side. And then team flair on the other, which is Desmond Wolf, James storm, Robert rude and sting. That's a lethal lockdown match. We've also got AJ styles defending his world title against D'Angelo De Niro. We got Kurt angle working with Mr. Anderson in a steel cage match. We got team 3d working with the band, which is Kevin Nash and Scott Hall also in a steel cage match, Kazarian and homicide and Shannon Moore. It's a three-way title for the X title in a steel cage match. The beautiful people taking on Angelina love and Tara also in a steel cage match, Kevin Nash and singles action with Eric young. Do you want to guess it's a steel cage match? We've got homicide, Alex Shelley, Brian Kendrick, and Chris Saban in the same match. It's an escape match, which is a steel cage match. And of course, Rob Van Dam and James storm. How about that for an opening match? Lots of talent, lots of stuff going on in TNA in 2010. It'll be the first time we talk about it. We'll keep the hits going on April 20th with spring stampede 2000. And we'll round out April with, uh, April 27th hashtag ask Eric anything, man, we got a lot of stuff coming your way here on 83 weeks. Don't we, Eric? I'm getting winded. We've got a lot of work to do coming up. We do, but we're looking forward to it. Apologize again for the delay this week. Eric was under the weather, but you can hear he's kicked out, but after making him watch super brawl 2000, I feel like he served as adequate punishment. We'll be back to you next week. Same bat time, same bat channel right here on Westwood one, leave us a five-star review, tell a friend, hit that subscribe button and tell them all about 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together. It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.